So we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first seven verses. The angel said the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, this same Jesus whom you have seen go in like manner shall come again. And that's the Christian's hope, the return of Christ. The Bible is clear about that and has much to say about the end of human history. Philosophers and historians have always struggled with the ultimate question, and the ultimate question is simply this. Why are we here? Where are we going? What is the purpose of history? Um, Is there any purpose? Where's life headed? Or are we just protoplasm waiting to become manure? Just a long evolutionary joke. So if you just kind of reduce all of these ideas by these philosophers and historians and boil them down, you come up with um, some real basic views. And so there's three basic views of human history. The first one would be that history is repeated. It's just a circle. Um, It just goes around and around chasing its tail. It doesn't move forward. It just cycles back through the same things. There's a cynical view of human history expressed in Ecclesiastics verses 1 or chapter 1 verse 9 it says that which has been is that which will be and that which has been is that which will be done so there's nothing new under the sun that's the sarcasm of the preacher in Ecclesiastics this is Hinduism with its reincarnations It's also typical of New Age thought. We mean nothing and we have no significance. Now, that doesn't work for some people, so there's another opinion. It's called naturalism. It says that not we're going around in in those circles. We are going in in some direction, um, but it doesn't really find any meaning to it because naturalism, by definition, is atheism. Um, That's why it's called naturalism, not supernaturalism. Uh, Popular atheist Richard Dawkins puts it this way. Evolution has no long-term goal. There is no long-distance target, no final perfection to serve as a criterion for selection. We're just going forward into nothingness. That's not a very satisfying view, even as the first one. It has no ultimate goal or purpose. But there's a third one that's becoming less popular all the time, and that's the biblical view of history. It says God created us with a purpose in mind, and history is his story. He pre-wrote it, and now he's playing it out with his will and purpose. It has a direction, and it has a very clear beginning in Genesis, and it has a very clear ending revealed throughout Scripture And climaxing in the book of Revelation, we are significant and we are going somewhere. The biblical view of history stands in sharp contrast to the hopeless despair of the first two. Job confessed, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be stopped. Through the prophet Isaiah, God declared, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So in human history, the central figure is the Lord Jesus Christ. His first coming was in humility, 
so that he might die for the sins of the world. And next time he comes, he's not coming in humility. He comes in glory. He doesn't come to die. He comes to reign. He doesn't come to rescue. He comes to condemn. The second coming of Christ is where the world is headed. Simply, history is headed towards what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. It's called the day of the Lord because it's the end of man's day. And you can look at history and see what man's made of it. So the Bible is loaded with warnings about the judgment of God. The second coming is mentioned over 1,800 times. So I thought this morning we would look at each one of those in great detail. <laughs> oh, there's another service, isn't there? Okay. The Old Testament alone, this theme is dominant in 17 books. And in the New Testament, there's over 300 references to the second coming. And this, as you can imagine, is not a very popular theme for preachers. In fact, it's avoided whenever possible. But the prophets had much to say about it. The apostles had much to say about it. But mostly, Jesus Christ himself had the most to say about it. And did you know that on the first day of the church, the very first sermon preached, spoke of it. Now, in Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul introduces us to this term, the day of the Lord. So please open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 5, as we begin the last chapter of this wonderful epistle of encouragement. Verse 1, now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, drunk at night. So you'll remember um, from last week that Paul has just completed explaining to us the rapture of the church. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He described the catching away of the church to meet the Lord in the air. Also, chapter 4 ends with this statement. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And this has been the blessed hope of the church since Christ has left. From the catching away of the church, Paul now turns to this terrible event that follows when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Throughout this letter, we see Paul's heart. He is a true shepherd. So his purpose here is not so much theological or about end-time events as it is pastoral. Now, the believers in Thessalonica were troubled by some of these issues. The first thing that troubled them is they thought the rapture would come in their lifetime. Christians were dying, and Christ hadn't arrived yet. So their question was, was, what happens to believers when they die? Do they miss the rapture? So Paul wrote to them in chapter 4, No, the dead will rise first, and we'll join them. So we'll all be there, so don't worry. But it was also 
When was the day going to come? When was the rapture? And when was this day of the Lord come? How long do we have to wait for this? And by the way, they knew about the day of the Lord because in Paul's second letter to him in chapter 2, he says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And any presentation of the gospel must include a discussion on judgment. So they had the information about the day of the Lord. They knew about it, but their question was, when? When is it going to happen? And so Paul, in verse 1, says, Now as to the times and epochs, so he moves from the rapture which takes the church out of the world to the judgment of the Lord that's coming back to the world. His information on the rapture was to encourage and comfort Christians. And if you'll notice down in verse 11 that even his discussion on the day of the Lord is to encourage and build up Christians. Now Paul gives us four points for our outline today. It's coming, it's character, it's completeness, and comparison. Look at verse 1. Those first little words, now as to... Could be translated, but concerning. This Greek phrase often occurs in the uh, writings of Paul when he changes the subject. He's talked about the rapture. Now he's discussing the day of the Lord, a different event. Times and epochs. Two different kinds of times here. The word chronos is the word which we get uh, chronology or clock time or calendar time. And kairos means seasons or events. It looks at time not from a viewpoint of a day and an hour. It looks at time from a viewpoint of an event. For example, at the end of the age, you have the time of Daniel's seventh week, the time of the Great Tribulation. You have the time of the Millennial Kingdom. Those are different times which certain events will take place. Now, during those times, you have a number of events. You have the rapture of the church, the rise of Antichrist, salvation of Israel, a series of judgments, Armageddon, the return of Christ, the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So many times and epics make up the end. So when is all this going to happen? Living under the Roman Empire, they're feeling persecution. And they're told by somebody, as 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us, that they are in the day of the Lord. And Paul has to say, no, no, you're not. So they had some confusion of these things, and they wanted to know, number one, what happens to the people when they die. And in chapter 4, he says, they'll be there at the rapture. Number two, when is this going to happen? And he says to them, as to the times and epochs, brethren, now look at this. He says, you have no need of anything to be written to you You don't need any more information. You already have all the information you need. He used that same phrase back in chapter 4, verse 9. So not only did they know all they needed to know about God's love, chapter 4, they knew all they needed to know about the wrath of God. And by the way, they're not alone in this. The disciples came to Jesus uh, in Matthew 24 and asked him, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the signs of your coming at the end of the age. So they had the same interest about the details 
and many, many people have written a lot of books about this timing. Um, it's a big curiosity, but Paul's response is that being prepared for the coming of the Lord does not involve date setting or clock watching. He says you don't need anything to be written into you because you're not going to be there. Look down at verse 9. God hasn't destined you for wrath. As Pastor Mark would say, here is another big hug. Also knowing the time could be dangerous for it, for us, right? If we knew the exact time of Christ's return and, and the timing of his judgment on earth, we could get spiritually lazy, right? If we knew it was going to be a long ways off. He says, you already know what you need to know, and what's that? That they will come like a thief in the night. It's going to happen when they don't expect it. A thief coming is not a joyful event of deliverance, but a sudden disaster. Verse 2, for you yourselves know full well, I've told you that. And we already know from this letter back in chapter 1, verse 10, this, this church was waiting for Christ to come, it says, and rescue them from the wrath to come. Then in chapter 2, 19, he reminds them of the Lord Jesus' coming. Chapter 3, 13 again reminds him of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And chapter 4, he discusses the rapture. And never does he tell them the timing or when. See, a thief doesn't usually announce his arrival, right? He doesn't say, I'm going to be there between 2 or 3 tomorrow morning. Please uh, leave your doors unlocked, the safe open, and the jewelry out, right? No. Let's, uh, let's turn to Matthew 24 for a moment. I think this is uh, critical. Matthew 24, verse 36. Now, Jesus has been talking about the, uh, about the time of the end, about his second coming when he comes to judgment. And he's talking about the fact that heaven and earth are going to pass away. And then in verse, 30, in verse 35, but verse 36, he says... The day and the hour no one knows, for the angels in heaven don't know. The Son on earth doesn't know it. Only the Father knows it. So this is a major secret here, folks. And then he describes the most interesting conditions. Verse 37. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in the days of Noah, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until that Noah entered into the ark. So what does that mean? Things were going on as usual. And they were utterly indifferent to 120 years of what? Noah doing what? He was warning, preaching righteousness, warning them. And they didn't care right until they got into the boat, until it started to rain. And maybe they got concerned when they were treading water, but... Um, and then in verse 42, he says, Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, if the head of the household had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too, 
For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So Jesus put every generation on notice that they had to live in expectation, right? And that event leaves us with the question, what is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is a technical term. And it's used many, many times, Old and New Testament, and it describes two critical events. First, God's devastating final judgment on all the unbelieving. And then to gather his saints into the earthly kingdom that we call the millennium. From the time the church is snatched away, things begin to change on earth. And the day of the Lord begins to roll like the war machine in Revelation. So if we're going to understand the day of the Lord, let's see what it meant to those who prophesied it. And whenever a Bible writer, New or Old Testament, speaks of the day of the Lord, it's always the same. Always the same. So we could spend hours going through all of the verses, but I'm just going to take you a quick sample of a few here. So let's see what Scripture says. Isaiah 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to to lay the land desolate. Jeremiah. For this is the day of the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. Joel, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Amos, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Zephaniah, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Revelation 6.17 calls it the great day of his wrath. Always refers to judgment, God's judgment on Sinners. It's the culmination of God's wrath and fury. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Peter calls it in 1 Peter 2, The day of visitation, this is some visit. But always it is the time when God unleashes his fury, his final fury on the sinners of the earth. Now, even though these terrible things are happening, in spite of it all, what's the response of the people? Look at verse 3. Peace and safety. Everything's going to be fine. We're headed for a time of peace, for a time of safety. You say, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. Who in the world would ever come up with that response? The Bible says the earth dwellers who are living in darkness. So there's going to be at that time false prophets, and they are being convinced by, um, the people are being convinced by a special group of satanic people working really hard to convince them that peace and safety is coming. Everything's going to be fine. We're headed for a new age. We got rid of those Christians. They're gone. They were what's what, holding us up. Right? They were the problem. We're coming into the dawning of a new age. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. If you turn back 
2,600 years ago, there was a fellow named Jeremiah. And he prophesied about the soon coming judgment and the future day of the Lord. He's saying what the false prophets were saying were wrong. And they were saying we're just heading into a new era. They were saying peace and safety, peace and safety. Everything's going to be wonderful. How did it turn out? Well, they threw Jeremiah into a pit and Israel was wiped out. Uh, In Matthew 24, Jesus is describing the tribulation. Verse 24. At that time, false Christs, false prophets will arise, will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if it were possible, and it isn't, even the elect. What makes these false prophets believable? Because those false prophets will do what? Great signs and wonders. So whatever capability hell has to put on a show, it's going to put it on then. And even when all that's happening... The world would go like sheep to the slaughter, even though they've been warned. Now, Paul, in verses 4 through 7, moves into another section on exhortation and encouragement to show us why we we do not need to fear about our future because of who we are. And he does it with comparisons. The whole human race, says Paul, is divided into two groups. And he starts this back in uh, chapter 4, verse 13. So the comparisons between the rapture and the day of the Lord, being caught up to heaven and being destroyed on earth, contrast between salvation and wrath, night and day, light and darkness, being awake, being asleep, sober, being drunk, being forever with the Lord and being forever Without the Lord. All of these are clear contrasts to this whole text. And it shows total separation between Christians and non-Christians. This is not a new theme in scripture. I would take you back to Psalms 107. Psalms 107, uh, 10 through 14. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor and stumbled, and they stumbled, and there was none to help. Verse 13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he broke their bands apart. So the psalmist is saying here, those who live in darkness, in the shadow of death, that's the night people. They were rejecting God's word, but there was a time prompted by the Holy Spirit when we called out to the Lord in our trouble, and he saved us. He brought us out of darkness and out of the shadow of death. Verse 6 then, back to... Thessalonians 5, verse 6. So then, so so then is a good reminder of the relationship between Christian's identity and his conduct, between his nature and his behavior. 
We are day people, so we act like day people. That's our character. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do. Others meaning unbelievers, but let us be alert and sober. Let us be who we are. He doesn't say in the prior verses, please be day people. He says, you are day people. Now, many of us struggle with our walk. We're trying to be better people. But Christianity is not about trying to become somebody you're not. It's about discovering who we already are in Christ. And even though we're day people, we still have live in the fallen flesh. And so it is possible for us to have some nightlife, right? Another dimension here added in verse 7, when he talks about drunkenness. It is night for them. It is pitch back. They're asleep and they're drunk. Now, wouldn't it be ridiculous for us to conduct ourselves as if we were night people? That's his whole exhortation here. Let's end with 2 Peter 3, 9 through 14. As you look to the future, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, 9 through 14, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and all its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? So there is global warming. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. You see, the issue is not when will he come, it's how are we living when he does come. Now, this is a very important word from Paul And you might be saying, well, I'm a believer. I put my trust in the Lord as my Savior. I don't need to know the times or the events. I'm not going to be here in the day of the Lord. Right. But I bet each one of us can think of somebody we know, we love, we care about right now that is in darkness. And we can tell them about their destiny without a Savior. So Jesus is coming again, and that knowledge should affect our lives considerably. It should cause us to live a holy life. It should cause us to really have a burden for souls, getting to peop- people to Jesus. See, we are day people. We are the light people. So we need to live like that so the world can see the light of Jesus. As the worship team comes up, Uh, We're going to pray, and then after the last song, if you need prayer for anything, there'll be some 
wonderful people up here on the front to the right that will pray for you. Anything you need. Let's pray. Father, this is an encouraging portion of Scripture for us, and we realize that we are unworthy uh, for your goodness, that you've given yourselves to us that make us day people. We've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, Lord, into the kingdom of light with your Son. We thank you, Lord, that we don't walk in darkness, but we have the light of life. Help us to act like children of the day as we live in a world that's dark around us, that men may see your light. And Lord, for those that do not know you, Lord, we pray that your spirit would convict them and draw them, draw them to the knowledge of Christ, to follow him and look for that glorious day of joy. And Lord, we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.